Bible with me to 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17 is where we'll be spending our time this morning. 2 Kings chapter 17. Good to see you this morning. And I appreciate you taking the time, making the effort to be here this morning so that we could open God's Word together. It's good to see Jeremiah before us. Appreciate his work in uh, leading the singing. And uh, appreciate everyone uh, participating in that. I, somebody said to me, I think it was Sonny, said to me, well, you're the only preacher left. You know, we had all these preachers here this last week, and now they've all gone, and you guys are stuck with me. So congratulations and my sympathies. 2 Kings chapter 17, I want to begin by reading verse 33. 2 Kings 17, verse 33 says, So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods, after the manner of the nations from from among whom they had been carried away. They feared the Lord, and that word Lord there is the name for Jehovah God, the one true God. They feared the Lord, but they served their own gods. Isn't that odd? Fear the Lord, serve their own gods. How could that happen? I want to think about that for a few minutes this morning. Just that phrase and that idea that we could fear the Lord but serve our own gods. What's happening in this text is this is the time right after Israel has been taken away into captivity. Israel is the northern ten tribes. And he is describing in this section the land then that is empty because the people have been taken away and how the Assyrian king has repopulated the land. And so as he describes these people who live there, he says they came and they brought their own gods and they have some reasons why they're also going to be thinking about Jehovah God, but they're going to have sort of both. They're going to be serving Jehovah and their own gods. And I want us to think some, for a few minutes this morning because what you see here is a distinction between fearing and serving. And that's a distinction I think we need to see. I think we need to understand just what is being taught in this section and just what it is these people do and how you and I can be similar in that we give some kind of acknowledgement to God without giving our whole hearts to Him. So we're going to study this passage for a few minutes this morning. And uh, to do that, I want to I remind you, kind of rewind to where we are in 2 Kings 17. So you remember, after Israel comes into the land, they conquer the land, the tribes settle the land, and eventually, after the time of the judges, the people ask for a king. And Samuel warns the people, this is what the king is going to be like. And yet God says, go ahead and give them a king. And so they have Saul. And then the kingdom's taken from Saul. David is instituted as king. Solomon, his son, becomes king. And then Rehoboam, his son, is the foolish one who divides the kingdom. And so you have the northern ten tribes of Israel and the southern two tribes of Judah. Now, the sad part of the history of the Bible is that those northern ten tribes never, ever, ever get their act together spiritually. They are never a kingdom that is what God intends it to be. And instead, if you read the record, there is never a good king. Never a king like in Judah who serves Jehovah, tries to bring the people back. Instead, Jeroboam begins that northern kingdom by stationing two golden calves at the northern and southern extremes of his territory so that the people won't go down to Jerusalem to worship God. And those golden calves are supposed to represent Jehovah, but of course... It's just sort of Jehovah 101 that you don't make graven images to serve Jehovah. That's just not what you do. And so there are always problems, and eventually God is done with the people. He sends prophets, tries to help them, but eventually he decides to take them into Assyrian captivity. Look in 2 Kings 17 and verse 6. 2 Kings 17 and verse 6, it says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria... And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. 
So this instrument God uses to punish the northern tribes is the Assyrians, who were a particularly brutal and powerful world empire at this time, and they take them away. And the author of Kings tells us exactly why God did this. And this is a section that I think we need to focus our attention on for a few minutes because when you see a section like this, what you see is this is what God cares about and what really angers God to the point that he's going to act. So read it with me, verse 7, 2 Kings 17, verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel and the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right they built for themselves high places in all their towns from fort watchtower to fortified city they set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight none was left but the tribe of Judah only so you could see it's a litany almost as if the writer is making a case why God had to do something because they are so determined to abandon God. Now, I want you to notice that the basis of this is that God had done something for the people. Did you notice that? This is back in verse 7, where he says, God had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and yet there's no sense of, well, that's our God. We're going to serve him. We're going to focus on him. We're going to worship his way. Instead, there is sort of a disloyalty. You do this for me. I'm going to take your gift and then go after other gods. And though he talks about the, the different idolatrous practices, and you can see that throughout, sometimes they're worshiping Jehovah as an idol, sometimes they're worshiping the Asherah or the Baals or the host of heaven, the different stars. What they're doing is worshiping whatever they want to worship or whatever the people around them are teaching them it's right to worship. Also, you, you see how stubborn they are. Did you notice that thread? God keeps sending prophets. I mean, how many prophets are there in the Bible just that we have their words still today, but there were other prophets that God sent just to try to, in each generation, stir the people up and pull them back from what they were doing, and yet they're determined, this is what we're going to do, we're not going to listen. And so what else can God do but to finally punish them in a more sweeping way? But I want you to see, the heart of the complaint of God in this section seems to be about loyalty that these people are not loyal to him, even though he's done so much for them. He is their God. They're supposed to be his people, and yet they refuse that, and they won't listen to him. And so God says, that's enough. You're going to be taken out of this land. Now, when you read a section like that, I know it's easy for us to say, boy, those are some bad people. Boy, they sure got what was coming to them. 
This should inspire some humility in us. Because something awful has happened here. And you think about what it would be like to be taken from your home, especially the the brutal methods of the Assyrians are legendary in the ancient world for how they would treat their prisoners. And what it would be like to have these families that would never see their homeland again, houses burned, cities removed, all of this happening so that a point could be made. Instead of saying, boy, they sure got what was coming to them, we need to think, God takes this so seriously that he is willing to allow his people to suffer to get the lesson. So we need to think about, well, are we getting the lesson? And the interesting thing about this text is that then you have other people who are going to come right after them, who are going to have the opportunity to learn from what's happened. Look down at verse 24. 2 Kings 17, 24. And the king of Assyria brought the people from Babylon, Kutha, Abba, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So it was part of Assyrian policy to repopulate the areas. It's not going to be a good idea to just leave these places that are used to being populated. You've got farms there. You've got cities there. You've got all these ruins. And just leave them. Instead, We've got other people. Let's put them there, and then, you know, everybody's going to have their own place. So he brings people from other lands. It's also likely we still have some Israelites here, okay? When, when you read that the people are taken away, it's probably not all the people, but probably most of the people. And I think there are some indications in the text that some of these people should have known better than what's going to happen here. All right, verse 25. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So we have a crisis here, right? All of a sudden, there are lions. Okay, and so the people are terrified of the lions. Something is amazing, though. Did you notice what happened? Did you notice that the king of Assyria understands what's happening? Better than the people of Israel? The king of Assyria says, and and please don't get the wrong idea, the king of Assyria is not a believer in Jehovah God. He's not suddenly converted. The king of Assyria is thinking the way ancient peoples thought. When you have a land, there is a God who's in charge of that land. And if you don't honor that God, then bad stuff's going to happen in that land. So when you come in, you got to learn that God's ways, and you got to honor Him and acknowledge Him and do all His sacrifices. Then you can live in His land. That's all he's saying. But he says, if there are lions in the land, and the people are are being terrorized by this, then, then we need to respect the God of the land. Let's learn about that God. So get one of these priests that we just brought here, send him back and tell him to teach him about Jehovah God or whatever his name is that is uh, in charge of that land. So they bring the priest. Now that's interesting too, right? Because the history of the priests in the northern tribes is not great. Uh, but do we have a real priest, an authentic priest, or just a priest that was doing things in the northern part? We don't really know. But he's at least going to tell them enough about Jehovah God that they could understand and worship him. All right, so verse 29, let's see what happens. Verse 29, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth. 
The men of Cuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of the Sepharvim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So they make their own gods and serve them. They fear the Lord, but they also bring in their own gods. You've got to imagine this is a, a mishmash of people. It's a melting pot. And so everybody comes from all these places, and here they say, well, I'm in this new land. So it's Jehovah's land. We've got to talk about Jehovah, but then we also got our own gods. So what we're really going to worship is our own gods, but we're going to nod the head to Jehovah. Yeah, it's your land. Please don't send any more lions, but we're going to worship our own gods and do things our own way. It's a hodgepodge of people and a hodgepodge of gods. It's this mixture of pluralism and ignorance. We think we need to just worship all the gods just in case, but we don't understand that one of the gods has particularly exclusivistic claims. Verse 34, to this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. Now isn't that interesting? Do you notice in verse 33, they fear the Lord and in verse 34, they do not fear the Lord. Do you notice? Now that that's one of those that's going to show up on your Bible contradictions list. It says in the, next, in the same two verses, they fear and do not fear the Lord. I think what he means is they don't really fear him because they don't keep his commandments. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm afraid of the lions. I'm going to tip my hat to Jehovah. It's another thing to say, I'm going to fear God by actually doing what he says. And there is a difference there. All right, let's finish out the text. Verse 35. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord your God. I'm sorry, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandments that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods and you shall not forget the command covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods. But you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to the former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So what he is saying then is that spirit of pluralism continued and became characteristic of the land. That land, that's what people did. If you went in that land, you don't find Jehovah worship anymore. You find this tacit acknowledgement of Jehovah along with whatever God you feel like worshiping. All right. So what we're saying is, what we're reading is a description of how this relationship between God and his people degenerated. And then the people who came in after became even worse. As much as God has done for them, the people God has brought out of Egypt have not been loyal to him. And now, now these other people have come in and they're not doing any better. Well, I think we have to ask the question, what do we learn here? I mean, what, what does this have for you and me in the 21st century? I, I want to just throw this at you, and I want you to think about it. You may, you may spend some time this week thinking about this. I wonder if this doesn't explain America to some degree. This is a place that if you poll Americans, they will say they believe in God overwhelmingly. They will say they believe in the Bible. They will say they believe in heaven and hell. 
And yet, there are behaviors that persist and thrive in America that make no sense if we say we believe in God. I'm talking about divorce and pornography and drunkenness. I'm talking about the prosperity gospel. I'm talking about human trafficking and prostitution. I'm talking about things that if we believe in God, these should have no place. There there should be no room for them. But instead, you you have this sort of distinction, just sort of like this. They, They fear the Lord, but serve their own gods, how it says that in the text. You might say of Americans, you know, they fear the Lord, but their, their true allegiance is to other things. Or, if you want to say it this way, they fear the Lord, but they also serve money or beauty or power or sex or pleasure or comfort or security or inclusion or self. There's something else that's really calling the shots. You know, we, we say we fear God, but then when it comes down to the level of real life, We do our own thing. So what I want to do for the time that we have is if we're going to see ourselves in this text, I think we have to admit that what this text is showing us is that God is disappointed that we're not giving him what he's expecting. And he's disappointed with these people. You can hear it in the tone of the text. They fear the Lord, but they do their own thing. Where God is seeking something deeper. And that you and I have to acknowledge that sometimes we're not giving God what he's really seeking. And if we want the relationship that God is seeking from us, then we're going to have to move a level deeper. And I think that's what this text is challenging us to do. So I want to say it this way. The first thing I think we see here is that God wants allegiance and not just acknowledgement. So in this text, when the lions come into the land, they immediately begin to say, wow, we got to figure out What's happening here? Who is the God of the land? What does he want from us? And so they do. They get a priest to educate them. Now look down in verse 28 with me. In verse 28 it says, So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. There it is. That's why they knew to fear Jehovah, because they had been taught how to fear Jehovah. But the fear doesn't go any deeper than that. They're going to acknowledge it. And so in verse 29, he says, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines. So you have that immediate distinction between they learned how to fear the Lord, how to acknowledge him, how to get the lions off their back, but they did not learn how to go any deeper to feel any kind of commitment to Jehovah God. And so they fear the Lord and serve their own gods. And you can hear the the disappointment in the text. They fear the Lord, but they don't really serve him. They serve their own gods. The problem here is that the people don't understand, and maybe this is a failure of the priest who's teaching them, I'm not sure. The people fail to understand that Jehovah God is not an and God, that you serve him and other things. He is and has always been an only God. All right, so if you're talking marriage, it's monogamy, not polygamy. Okay, God is into I want to be your God, singular, the only one. And the idea of serving him and a bunch of other gods is just never going to work. No matter how much you say, yes, I respect Jehovah God, you're first among all my gods. The idea of serving God and has just never worked with God. In fact, that's one of the reasons God gave for sending his own people into captivity. Do you notice that? 
Back when that long section that we read, verse 7, verse 12, verse 16, he says, this is because they did not serve him only, they served other gods. They went after idols. So God wants loyalty from his people. I use the word allegiance, loyalty, faithfulness, commitment. The idea, though, is that God is wanting more than just saying, yes, I believe, yes, I believe. Let, let me acknowledge you and then go do what I want. That's what these people were doing. I'll acknowledge you just to cover my bases, but I'm not really going to do what you say, and I'm not really going to be in service to you. So the danger is that you and I begin to treat God like these settlers did, where we begin to say, you know what, as long as I say the right things, as long as I say, you know, if the Lord wills, or I pray over it, then God is just going to be okay with whatever I decide. You see what's happening there? I'm acknowledging God, but, but there's no real commitment, no real allegiance. I'm not committed to serving God or doing what God wills. Instead, it's just sort of painting my thoughts as if God is endorsing them automatically. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't acknowledge God. I'm saying that God is wanting something deeper than just acknowledgement. And they are on a surface level, and that's disappointing. Uh, the second thing, God wants obedience and not just fear. Do you notice that the term fear is used several ways in this section? Verse 33, verse 33, So they fear the Lord, but also serve their own gods after the manner of the nations among whom they had been carried away. Then verse 34, To this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment. So they fear the Lord, but they do not fear the Lord. That is, in the first instance, he seems to be using fear as describing being afraid of what God can do. It's the kind of fear that comes up when there are lions. I'm going to show God reverence because I know God, he can do stuff, he's more powerful than me, and I'm just kind of covering my bases. But there's something deeper there in verse 34. In verse 34, the idea is fear leads to obedience. I'm going to actually do what he says. I'm going to follow his statutes and his commandments. So they're doing something regarding God, but God wants that something to go deeper. They have an opportunity to hear from a priest about how God wants them to live, and they're passing that opportunity by and saying, you know what, I'm just going to be afraid, I'm just going to acknowledge, and that's going to be the end of it. There's fear here, but there's no conviction. They're not saying, wow, I've got to do right because God has told me what's right. There's a difference. There is fear here, but there is no introspection. You know, maybe God wants me to change. Maybe God wants different things from me. Maybe I am not right. There's fear here. But there is no sense of learning God's heart, seeking the will of God and the face of God, seeking a deeper connection with God. So I want you to see what's happening. We can be afraid, but fear is really shallow because fear doesn't get us where God wants us to go toward obedience. Now, there are things that we fear, and we're afraid of things that are beyond our control, and that's understandable. And sometimes, though, we can put God in that bucket where we just say, you know what, I'm afraid of God because I don't really know what God's going to do, and so I'm just going to settle for this kind of terror of the potential of God using his power in a way that I don't like. God wants us to grow, to grow past fear and anxiety to a past being just afraid of the lions 
to where we actually say, I'm going to trust, I'm going to obey him. I'm going to obey because I believe God has my best interest at heart instead of God's just waiting there to use his power to harm me in some way. We should be more than just afraid of what God could do to us. Instead, we obey from a heart of trust. That's what God's wanting. So when they fear the Lord but serve their own gods, what happens is God is disappointed in that. That's not enough. And the third thing is that God wants hearts, not just words. Hearts, not just words. Look at verse 35 with me. Let's read this section. Verse 35, the Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods and you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. This is God's appeal. God says, I want this to be a relationship where you care about me and I care about you. Where I speak and you listen. Where I give you things and you receive them well. You serve me, I bless you. I want it to be a relationship that you are engaged in, where your heart is with me. By the way, this, the way this part is written makes me think, is why I said earlier, I do think that some of the Israelites are still involved here because he talks a lot about the covenant and the exodus because these are things that were a part of their history and they would have said, yes, that should make me have some kind of deeper allegiance to God. And God is reminding them of those things. That's what he expects of them. That's what he wants from them. So... Even in ancient times, I want you to see that God was after the people's hearts. Not just them saying, yeah, I love Jehovah, but I also love Nergal and Adramelech and all these other gods. I want your heart. Words have an incredible power. We can do a lot with our words. We communicate so much with our words. We hurt people with our words. We bless people with our words. But we have a really hard time understanding that words we don't mean don't mean anything. That words without the heart behind them are empty and useless. And especially does God stress that in our relationship with him. Jesus says, quoting Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. There's a difference between the heart and the mouth. You, you know, your, your words sound great. But I know your heart. You don't mean it. So what do you think I'm going to do? Why do you expect that God will be pleased or won't notice when your heart is far from me? Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? The idea of the difference between saying something and meaning it and giving our whole heart to God, that's what Jesus is stressing. We're almost done, but give me just a second. Think about this with me. Do you wonder why they would do that? Why would you say this about Jehovah God and, and honor Jehovah God, but then go build your shrines to your gods? It seems to me that they felt there was something they were going to get 
from worshiping their gods that they were not going to get from honoring Jehovah. Something else. That, yeah, Jehovah, that's all important and good, but he's not really my God. And, you know, if I'm going to worry about the crops or I'm going to worry about what's going on in my life and my family, then I need to worship this God or else I might not get what I'm seeking. Probably they didn't believe that worshiping Jehovah alone would meet their needs and desires. But when you ask that question, I think you also have to ask, why do we do this sometimes? Why is it that we struggle with empty words? Why is it that we sometimes, we sit in assemblies like this and we sing songs and we don't mean them? And we open the Bible and we don't really listen. And we pray, but we know that it's just the same rote phrases that don't have any heart behind them. I mean, why do we do that? I think it's the same reason. Part of it is the heart is not fully engaged. And part of it is we have forgotten what God's really after. That God wants more than just the words or just the acknowledgement or just the fear. That God's after a relationship in which we are fully engaged. And it seems to me particularly dangerous that we sometimes think that our acknowledgement and our fear and our words mean we're doing the right things. You know, after all, I said the right words, as if that's all that God is after. So please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't acknowledge God and shouldn't be afraid of God in some ways. And I'm also not saying that we shouldn't say the right words. What I am saying is God's seeking something deeper, and this text shows that. The image that I kept coming back to as I was thinking about this is marriage. I mentioned uh, monogamy, polygamy, which is kind of a weird image because God has relationships with all humans. So, you know, it's kind of weird to figure out how that's not polygamy. But anyway, don't think about that too long. (laughs) God wants his people to be committed to him. And they keep wanting to be with lots of other people, other gods. And any way you frame that, it's a betrayal. Yeah, I want to be with you, God, but I also want to be with this God and this God and this God. And when you talk about marriage or you talk about a a relationship, another human, it's no surprise that God would be frustrated by that. But I also find that the main application here is a marriage application too. So... If we're struggling in our marriages, the answer to that is not, you know what, let's just quit saying I love you, you know, because the words aren't the important part. That's not the answer. The answer in a marriage that's struggling is to give our whole heart to the relationship, to go all in. Yes, that involves words, but it involves far more than words. It is to determinedly and passionately pursue that other person. It's to go back to that intense focus and passion to know their heart, to understand them, to love them. It's to let that change us little by little, choice by choice, as we grow together. And then we keep going. And we keep developing and deepening that relationship. That's what God's after. That passion to know Him and to understand His will and to grow closer to Him. That's what he's after. That's what he was after in the ancient world. It's what he's after with these people who settle in his land. That's what he's after with you and me. It might also help 
if we would acknowledge what it is that are our own gods, the things that tend to draw our attention and focus away from Jehovah, the things that we really do let call the shots in our hearts and lives and emotions, what is it that's hesitating, that's making us hesitate from going all in with God? So, I want you to think about this passage as posing a challenge to you and me, that it's possible to fear God and yet serve our own gods. And ask yourself the question, where am I going to stand about that? Thank you so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.